Thanks for having me back. I don't know if anyone actually went to the pastors and said, don't let this happen again. <laughs> but uh, I appreciate coming back, so. All right, I'll just jump right in. So last week we uh, talked about some tests you can apply to determine if a belief is true and worth having. If a belief aligns with God's word and if a trustworthy community shares it, it's probably worth your time. Today we'll finish John, 1 John 4 and we'll start uh, chapter 5. And our topic today is love. We have a lot of text, so I'm going to read for the next like three minutes. Our text is 1 John 4, 7 through 5, 4. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved, he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us, and his love is perfected in us. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us, because he has given us of his spirit. And we have seen and testified that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him, and he in God. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. By this is love perfected with us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment. Because as he is also, so also are we in the world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God, and hates his brother, he's a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God who has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God, and everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. By this we know that we love the children of God, when we love God and obey his commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Pray with me. God, uh, help me to get out of your way this morning. Um, you have a, a great message to, to speak through, First John, and I don't want to be a stumbling block for, for anyone. Lord, I pray that uh, today you can bless this crowd. Um, God, give them a deeper understanding of you and your heart for them and what it means to love. Lord, uh, yeah, that's it. In your son's name I pray. Amen. So perhaps I should have said, our topic today is love as it is used throughout the books of 1 John and Mustard of the New Testament. I'm not saying that it's misused. Um, love in English is a very flexible word. Uh, it can mean all sorts of things. I love my parents hasn't got the same sort of weight as I love this burrito. 
So it's necessary to point out that there are three different Greek words that we lump together in English as love. There's a word for physical, sensual love. There's a word for neighborly, brotherly love. And then there's this last word, which I'll call perfect love. And that's the, the sort of, the, this last word is what I'll use today. Uh, it's used in 1 John pretty much exclusively. <clears throat> C.S. Lewis defines this perfect love as a steady wish for the loved person's ultimate good as far as it can be obtained, which I think is a fantastic definition. I'll use the phrase perfect love to help you zero in on that versus burrito love. Although there's nothing to be, I mean, a, a good burrito really can bless your life. Just ask Alec. <laughs> I saw that man eat a football-sized burrito last week. It was, it was amazing and disgusting. Yeah, it was, it was enormous. Last week, I gave you guys a pair of tests that you can use to check your beliefs against the truth. This week, John gives us some tests to see if we know God. John tells us that God is perfect love. He's the ultimate, constant wish for good in the lives of those that he loves. Every action of God in history can be seen through that lens of God being perfect love. This is not a popular point of view. A lot of people see God as the source of violence and hate, and then they point to things in the Bible as proof. When the Lord judges the world as sinful and sends a flood to end humanity, it can be really hard for us to, to read that and get on board with that being for the ultimate good. I'm not going to argue that case right now, except for that I'll say that God has the right and the authority to do whatever he wants with us. As a lot of parents like to say, I made you and I, can, I brought you into this world and I can take you out of it. God really can say that. One of the messages of the word is that, unfortunately for us, we're fallen and sinful, and God has every right to ignore us and in order to destroy us completely with no hope or survival. We have no reason to exist outside of God's gracious and perfect love. God shows us the extent of perfect love and how far it goes when he makes a, the offer of life through Jesus. God's steady wish for us is that we come to maturity and live life in a right manner. The ultimate expression of that wish is Jesus, God made human, to pay our way. There's no better way for God to express to us his love for us. And since we can never pay God back for that, uh, we pay each other, we pay God's love forward onto one another. We are to wish for one another's ultimate good as far as, it can, as much as we can. Applying one of last week's tests, we can accept this word as, as true and that it aligns with the message of Jesus when he says to, to love your enemies and to love, uh, love the Lord your God and our neighbors. So what does it really mean to show perfect love to one another? Having someone else's good in mind can take a lot of different forms. In romance, showing perfect love might mean that you ask a hard question. Can I really be the best, most useful person to my partner? Can I meet their needs or help them meet their needs? It's a hard question to ask because it ends relationships. I think it's necessary to ask before you get engaged, though. Perfect love doesn't just consider what I need. 
it considers what my partner needs. And friendship, showing perfect love, might be appropriately offering accountability, like agreeing to point out when your friend's walk doesn't line up with their talk. Perfect love might mean speaking truth to someone's heart when they both desperately need to hear it and desperately don't want to listen. Perfect love pushes past fear, can communicate care and acceptance, and doesn't just settle for brokenness. Showing perfect love to one another means leading each other back to God, the source of love, time and time again. Really wears me out. Sometimes perfect love means communicating to someone how they really ought to be seen. Lately, I've been reading this really incredible uh, comic slash journal on Tumblr of the artist, uh, this artist, and it's her journal of her eating disorder. One of the striking parts is how the artist draws herself from her own point of view versus how she draws herself when other people are interacting with her. You see, she suffers from anorexia, and every time she looks into a mirror, she just sees a pot belly. Uh, those around her, um, she, they see that she wears pants made for little boys and is well below a healthy weight. One day she's surprised because she sees herself out of the corner of her eye in the mirror and doesn't recognize who she sees. She sees herself more like other people see her. It's easy for us to get the wrong idea of who we are when we are our only source of information. Hearing and believing trustworthy people's perspectives of who we are and what we look like can bring a lot of healing. God is in a unique position to communicate to us what we really look like. He alone can uniquely speak to the depths of our heart if we let him. Before I move on to the next section, um, I want to establish a little bit of background. Back in the Old Testament, uh, we see in like the book of Judges, that the Holy Spirit kind of plays a different role than in much of the New Testament. While the Holy Spirit today continues to do much of the same work of salvation that it did back then, uh, throughout these books, God's covenant of, with people was a little different. Um, it's due to this difference that we even have the terms Old Testament and New Testament. Under the Old Covenant, the Holy Spirit arrives on the scene to do something specific and then leaves again. The Holy Spirit is God's Batman. The Holy Spirit often anointed God's people to accomplish a task, but that doesn't necessarily stick with them after that. King David writes in Psalm 51, Cast me not away from your presence, and take not your Holy Spirit from me. The Holy Spirit was associated with God's temple. The high priest would be able to enter in and commune with with God's Spirit there. We read in the prophets that part of the new covenant would be a permanent indwelling of the Holy Spirit in God's people. Jesus referred to us as God's temple, and he got into quite a lot of legal trouble for doing so. He told the Israelites that he would destroy the te- that the temple would be destroyed and Jesus, that Jesus would build it in three more days. That's a story for another time. What I want you guys to remember is that the new covenant establishes us as the temple for the Holy Spirit in which to reside. God makes us his home. Huge difference. So, 
Armed with this background, we can better appreciate 1 John 4 and 5. Because believers have the Holy Spirit, we can rest assured that God remains in us and we remain in him. Though we may doubt from time to time our salvation, we need not suffer the same sort of fear that David had when he wrote Psalm 51. The Greek word that gets translated as abides in 1 John is also translated as remains or lives or indwells. Because we have confessed Jesus as the Son of God, God starts making us into his house, his temple. Since God is perfect love, if you live in perfect love, you live in God. Uh, The seminar I teach, Renewing the Mind, starts with this great quote from our pal C.S. Lewis. Imagine yourself as a house. God comes in to rebuild that house. At first, perhaps, you can understand what he's doing. He's getting the drains right and stopping the leaks in the roof and so on. You know that those things need doing, and so you're not surprised. But presently, he starts knocking the house about in a way that hurts abominably and does not seem to make any sense. What on earth is he up to? The explanation is that he's building quite a different house from the one you thought of. Throwing out a new wing here, putting on an extra floor there, running up towers, making courtyards. You thought you were going to be built into a decent little cottage, but he is making a palace. He intends to come and live in it himself. If you want to experience perfect love in your life, you invite change. You don't get much say in the matter. When you invite God in, you invite him to make you better, more mature, how he wants you to be. This is what John is writing about when he says that love is perfected within us. God transforms you from the inside out in order to make you into his temple. This is incredibly freeing. As God makes you into what he wants of you, you'll have less to be afraid about. As God continues this process, which we call sanctification, God works in you to make you more and more at peace with him. You're not on your own working your way up to God. He's already at work in you. And because you're more and more right with God, you don't have to live a a life afraid of God punishing you. This process takes a lot of time. It doesn't happen instantaneously. It's a real gradual thing. Which brings us to the verse that actually made me into a believer. One thing I struggled with as a child um, and a teenager was the topic of initiation. Uh, Growing up, I felt less and less chosen by my friends. Um, I was just a tag-along sort of guy. Uh, I didn't have the, the best toys I didn't have, like, the most fun house. Uh, I didn't have the best video games. But I always just hung out with the people who did. Um, combined with, like, my low self-esteem, I, I couldn't really tell you why anybody would be interested in knowing me. I didn't really think there was much to know. I hadn't done anything of value. I'd never traveled. I wasn't terribly talented. I still, to this day, have not beat Super Mario Brothers 1. All my friends had. In a nutshell, I, wasn't, I didn't think I was anything anyone had any reason to care about. I didn't really have too many friends that, would, that I would even let in to see the real Josh. Uh, nobody pursued me, and I just felt lonesome, and it was just a spiral of, of that. Video games and movies and board games 
uh, kept, kept me separated and sheltered when it came from, from things that were important. As I said last week, without the ability to share openly, we stagnate and we believe lies about ourselves, about others, and about the world. Prior to college, I believed I was pretty worthless and nobody made any effort to get to know me. Actually, I think I was, I saw myself as optional to the world. Uh, nobody reached out to me or recognized that I was cloaked in layers of masks and protective indirection. My defenses were always on extreme alert, maximum skepticism. Then I got to this verse. I'd grown up uh, in a church knowing about God and Jesus. I had a very, like, very, like, lots of head knowledge, um, but I was really frustrated and low. This verse, combined with the community I found in Align My Life, allowed me to begin that God had been pursuing me. God was the one who reached out. He made first contact. I didn't ask him to come into my life without him starting something already. He started the search. I can't tell you uh, quite what that means today or meant then in just words. Only interpretive dance can do it justice. I'm not going to dance. I grew up Baptist. We don't dance. God initiates his perfect love in us, which enables us to offer that perfect love to others. Um, before I let Jesus into my heart and let him start that transformation, I, I was not in a position where I could show, where I could have other people's interests in mind. We're free to wish and act for one another's ultimate good for the first time ever once we have that perfect love. This means that we don't have to win in order to enjoy something. We don't have to be the center of attention in order to, in order to participate. No longer do we have to compliment in proportion to the compliments we, re- we receive. We can go further. We can offer compliments without any subtext. We can enjoy each other without being the center of attention. Uh, we can play without winning because he gives us the victory that counts. We can talk honestly into one another's hearts insofar as they let us. If we have perfect love within us, we must demonstrate that love to others. John warns us and gives us another test of our salvation. If we claim to love God but not other people, we're liars. We lie to ourselves maybe, to others, and God definitely. Once again, community is an integral part of this life of faith. Our faith cannot live in the vacuum of a lone Christian. We participate in God's ministry when we show perfect love to others. And sometimes that perfect love results in them knowing God too. This love offers beauty, healing, connection, and life. Without perfect love living in us, I dare say we cannot fully appreciate praise or properly feel pride. We'll never feel truly pretty or strong until we have God's love in us. Our flesh just gets in the way of our understanding. 
This is part of the victory that John reminds us of. God indwelling us overcomes all of those false gods that we call the world. God indwelling us empowers us to live life to the full. John wrote that Jesus is the propitiation for our sins. It's such a hard word to say. I cannot believe I've said it correctly twice now. (laughs) In order to let God's perfect love indwell us, make us a new house, uh, we need to be set free from our sin that rules us. In the old covenant, we're kind of taught to make like an annual reconciliation with God to balance the checkbook of our souls. Not so in the new covenant. We're taught in the new covenant that God himself balances our accounts. He himself is the only one who can provide a way for us to believe that the, in that ultimate good for ourselves and others. Today is Palm Sunday, the week before Jesus balanced our accounts. Um, so today is the day he arrived back in Jerusalem. Uh, his followers welcomed him back to Jerusalem by laying down palm fronds for his donkey to walk on. Nowadays, we just use a red carpet. Uh, as I invite the band back up, I want you to reflect on how much you're welcoming Jesus into your heart. He's the only reason that we can know how good perfect love can be. So will you pray with me? God, I pray that, uh, God, thank you for your love. Thank you for making me into your palace and continue that good work, God. Lord, I pray that uh, I don't get in your way, that I can get on board with your plans and that all of these people who you've made your children can also get on board with your plans, God. Teach us to love one another. Teach us to love ourselves and to live rightly. God, thank you so much for uh, caring about us enough to to pay our costs, to to settle our accounts. Lord, um, help us to honor that as we show love to one another. In your son's name we pray. Amen.